Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And I don't know if you know this, buddy, but I'm embarking on making a documentary. Are we really? I am, yeah. I'm following in the footsteps of lots of other fools who waste their time <laughs> making a pilot and think it's great and then, you know, yep. try to get people to help fund it and then crickets. I don't know. It's very hard. It is very hard. But the subject matter is really cool. Mm -hmm. As anybody who's listened to the podcast knows, I sort of reversed diabetes and lost weight with this ketogenic diet thing. And yep. a lot of others have followed in my footsteps from listening to the show. And the science is coming out and more and more people are being convinced and less afraid of eating fat and heart disease and all of this stuff. So I want to make a show where I follow three or more people over the course of their transformation. Nice. And then help them with cooking because it's got to be a food-oriented show. Uh, you and I sure. are both fans of, of Alton Brown. Eating? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he's back. Yeah. So imagine like a good eats, like really good food, cooking, preparation, eating, and science of keto at the same time. And you get to see somebody dropping weight and reversing diabetes at the same time. Nice. That's what I'm working on. It's called The Keto Fixer. And you'll probably hear more about that soon. Awesome. I love it. So everything's good with you? Yeah, yeah. Things are really great. You know, all spare time has been poured into the book. People have been complaining about missing geek outs. Obviously, there's one coming up next show. 1600 yeah. is going to be a geek out. Yeah. But just so you know, I'm not taking any time off. All that research energy is going into the books. That's so great. I cannot wait. Yeah. I've kind of acknowledged now there's going to have to be more than one. Not that it's going to be a series or anything. I'm going to write the book that everybody wants. It's sort of that history book first, mm. but you can only fit so many pages. So there's going to be some deep dive books after that. Very cool. Well, let's get started with Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, man, what do you got? Well, this one came to me by Brian McKay, who's also one of our AppV Nexters. And it's GitHub repository of algorithms. Huh. It's github.com slash the algorithms C dash sharp. So it's C sharp based algorithms like ciphers, data compression, data structures, numeric algorithms, searches and sorts and miscellaneous. Oh, I see. And they've organized it. So it's sort of the same set of algorithms, but they've written them for Python and JavaScript and Go and C sharp. That's right. That's really neat. And they're encouraging other people to add their algorithms to it. Of course, they, they want to get a, a nice big collection here. And I think that's a worthwhile repository. Yeah. What a great idea just to have a place you would go yep. to get those algorithms. Yeah. Love it. You could participate here by just seeing if you see there's an algorithm implemented in, in Java that has been implemented in C Sharp, you know, write the other version. Yeah. And what a great exercise too in cross-language development totally that's brilliant i love it love it love it that's really cool man nice find thanks so who's talking to us today mr campbell grabbed a comment off of show 1565 the one we did with one benjamin hall yeah i think i called the show it's a container world actually no i know i called it that <laughs> you're just living in it yeah i'm just living in it it's a container world man what i like about ben is that he builds stuff and then he talks about the technology he built it with right and obviously that was katakota that he built it very container-centric, and it, I don't right. know if it could have worked any other way. Yeah. And in that show, we talked a lot about the evolving containers and this idea that 
maybe containerization is a logical thing to happen on the client too. Just creating those perimeters around any piece of software so that we can control how they call out what resources they have access to and so forth. And Paulo Pinto said, regarding containers on the desktop, I guess you guys could have a look at the work being done with Windows 10 and MSIX, hmm. which is emerging of Windows 32 and UWP sandbox models. And we actually did a show on MSIX. So, you know, valid point that, that this is about the installer creating packages around software as well. Yeah. As well as the device guard, secure kernel, and isolated user mode. These are all elements of Windows, you know, trying to do its best on the client side to protect itself. The Linux world is now migrating to a mix of Snap, which is an Ubuntu implementation, and Flatpak, which is a bunch of other versions of Linux. Both of which sound like expletives. <laughs> well, it is Linux. If you're not cursing, you're not doing it right. Flat pack. <laughs> and in the Mac OS world, there's also Gatekeeper, XPC, SIP, and the iOS permissions models coming up in Mojave with the new security runtime. Nice. So, you know, the point, Paulo's making a point. We're not wrong. All of these different platforms are all pursuing this containerization concepts, although maybe coming at it from a different angle, but mm. different ways to sort of put wrappers around software so that we know declaratively what privileges they need. Yeah. And then he says, other than that, a great show. Yeah. Okay. I think it was a great show one way or the other. You know, worked pretty good. <laughs> Paulo, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Go By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Go By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via social media. We publish every show to Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Go By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We read them in an isolated user sandbox. <laughs> so you don't have to worry about infecting us. Go ahead, send us a virus in your tweet. I double dog dare ya. You just try it. Knock yourself out. Okay, now I'm scared. <laughs> yeah. Don't goad them. They'll take I you off on it. I know. Our <laughs> listeners are smart. The wicked smart. Wicked smart. All right. Well, it's our pleasure to welcome back to the show Elton Stoneman. He's a plural site author and Microsoft Azure MVP, and he works for DACA. He's been architecting and delivering successful solutions with Microsoft technology since 2002, and most recently, APIs and big data implementations in Azure and distributed systems with Docker. He tweets at Elton Stoneman, blogs regularly, and his most popular Pluralsight courses cover message queue fundamentals in .NET and modernizing .NET apps with Docker. Welcome, Elton. Hey, hey, good to be back, guys. Wow, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'd employ that guy. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He talks a lot about himself. What do you know? What do you know? Say about that? <laughs> yeah, that is, well, unfortunately, that, that is part of my job. <laughs> right. But aren't bios the worst? It's the hardest thing. You got to tell people something about yourself, but it's very challenging to sort of something you're comfortable to say or, or to have read to you for that matter. And I left two thirds of it out. Yeah, no, it's sort of reality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm British, so I can't. I, you know, I can't have people saying, "Yo, he's really great." I was on a call with a client, and someone introduced me as international speaker, world-renowned expert. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to live up to. Yeah, yeah. Goodness, but you're very nice. <laughs> <laughs> very, very nice. Yes, I can aim for nice. Yeah, very polite. There you go. Yes, as is Richard. Me, not so much. I come from the country of rudeness. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm from British Columbia, so it's a, we got our tie in there. Well, I'm going to let you guys take the lead on most of this since this is in your wheelhouse, Richard. I haven't installed a Windows server since maybe 2002. Well, and, and why should you anymore, right? They should yeah. all be living in the cloud, right? It's, it's hard to find justification for actually owning a server much these days. Although, I did get a request from a client at AppVNext to help them move a VB6 application. Oh, my. From a Windows server, I think it was like Windows 2000 server. Probably, yeah. To a Windows 2012 server. Uh, Windows 2002 to 2012 without changing the code and making sure that it was going to be run compatibly. Oh, boy. And I said, that's not my area of expertise. You're going to have to call someone else. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. No, not me. Or I could stick needles in my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is the sort of stuff we get all the time. Not, you know, VB6, yes, sometimes. .NET 2.0 from 10, 15 years ago. Put that stuff yeah. in a container. I want to get to the cloud. Yeah, right. that's, that's yeah. what we do. Yeah, no kidding. Container technologies come from Linux. And it's felt to me like Windows has just been behind on all of this. The Azure is clearly supporting it, but Windows just doesn't seem to be up to speed. Yeah, so, so the stuff that Docker uses has been part of Linux for 20 years. So the, the key right. bits that make containers work have been around for a very long time. But Windows doesn't want to not be able to offer the same functionality. So right. uh, I think Docker started working with Microsoft back in 2014, maybe even before that, to look at getting the same kind of feature set into Windows Server. And that came out in Windows Server 2016, which seems right. recent, but in container years, you know, that's that's a thousand years ago. Sure. And now we're on the next rev. So Windows Server 2019 is coming out now. And what you find with Windows Server 2016 There are some gaps in functionality between what you can do with a Windows container and what you can do with a Linux container. And now with 2019, most of those gaps are gone. The two things are pretty much the same from uh, from a usability point of view. Nice. I mean, admittedly, 2016 was kind of the first version. Yeah, absolutely. So 2016 was the first version of Windows that supported Docker containers. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I don't want to get too far off the track here, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on the idea that when 2019 shipped, so to speak, there was no concept of an RTM. Did you see that? Yeah, I did see that. This is an interesting step to omit in your release process. So the RTM, yeah, give a small number of people what they're going to see in production, get their feedback. It's usually a pretty useful step for enterprise software. Yeah, and kind of necessary. I don't know. I'm, so there's days where I think the Windows team has gotten remarkably reckless. <laughs> well, the interesting thing about Windows Server particularly is they've got these two these two deliveries now. So there's Windows Server long-term support, which is right. Windows Server 2016, 2019, which has uh, the, the traditional eight or 10 years support. And then they have this semi-annual channel, which they release every six months, and they have all the new features in there. So, so really, when you're coming to do a new release of long-term support, Actually, you've already had most of the features out in the wild for maybe two years, you know, some of those right. older features. So in theory, a lot of that stuff is battle tested. And, and a lot of the stuff that's in 2019 that's to do with containers has actually been around in the semi-annual channels for the last year or so. So some of that stuff has been tested a lot and, and some of it is, is obviously fairly recent. So I'm sure you guys have talked about this a lot on Run As Radio, but for the rest of us, can you tell us, are there any killer features that we need to pay attention to if we're running any version of Windows Server that Windows Server 2019 is going to make us 
upgrade for? So purely from my point of view, from the I'm sat here wearing a Docker T-shirt. <laughs> containers are evolving in 2019. So people are using Windows containers in production now on server 2016 for yeah, production workloads. Right. But 2019, it gets rid of a lot of the pain points. There were some workarounds you had to do which were a little bit clunky. Things like if I'm developing on a VM, because I'm old school, I like to develop on the same sort of machine that I'm going to be running in production. If I've got sure. a Windows Server 2016 VM and I'm running containers on there, I can't access the container using localhost. So when I run a container, I can publish a port, which means traffic goes into the container instead of from into the VM's networking stack. But on the VM itself, I can't use localhost colon 8080 or whatever I'm using. That's just a limitation of the Windows networking stack. And there are a few more things around there. So if you think about the Linux networking stack is this huge thing that's evolved over the decades to deal with all these use cases. And the Windows networking stack was a much smaller set of functionality. Now, Docker used a lot of the Linux networking and just assumed it was always going to be there. And what they've done in Windows Server 2019 is bring some of that functionality into the Windows networking layer. So things like localhost now works, things like when you're running in a cluster, uh, Docker can automatically load balance requests that are coming in between containers. That works on Windows now. And things like being able to access the Docker API. So when you're running Docker commands, Docker container run and Docker image build, your command line is talking to the API that's running in the background as a Windows service. Historically, if you wanted to be able to talk to a remote Windows server Docker API, so I want to talk to my CI server or whatever, I had to expose the API over TCP IP. I had mm. to protect it all with a TLS certificate. It's all doable, but it's clunky. Whereas now there's named pipe support. So from within a container, I can access Docker on the host and spin up a whole bunch of other containers, which is really useful for like CI builds. Nice. Now, we're in an interesting window at this particular moment because we're recording the show on October 22nd. And of course, the GA of Windows Server 2019 was October 2nd, right after Ignite. But on October 12th, they paused the release of 2019 along with Windows 10 1809 release because there were complaints, there were some problems. And at this point, while we're recording this, that pause is still going on. So you can't actually get the bits if you wanted to. Yeah. Presumably, by the time we publish, this will be resolved. Yeah, absolutely. So people of the future who are listening now, this is all you can ignore all this because it's all done and dusted. But yeah, actually, yeah. right now, it's very difficult if you're writing blog posts or trying to update your book for the latest version of Windows because you can't get yes. everything that's out there. And actually, what, what happened was, as far as I know, the only scenario where it was a problem is when you were upgrading, you're doing an in-place upgrade from 2016 to 2019, and there right. was a risk of data loss under some very specific circumstances. Now, I never do any of that stuff because I just spin up a new VM and I do my stuff and then shut it down. So luckily, I downloaded all the bits as soon as they released, and I've got a local cache. So I can do all this stuff, but no one else can yet. <laughs> yeah, okay. That, I mean, and that's good. And just to be clear, like, there was no actual file loss. It was a problem with the GNOME folder redirection. Mm. So the files are still there. It's just that you'd imagine somebody upgrading Windows 10 to 18.09, and then when they fire it up and it's all there, their documents folder's empty. Nice. Yeah, it's not a nice thing to see. <laughs> and the reality is it's literally in a different folder and it's pointing to the wrong place. Mm -hmm. But why? And it just terrorized a certain section of updaters. It's not everybody was affected by this. There's no, seems to be no evidence of files actually being lost yet, but boy, it's like, dudes, like, what are you doing? Like, oh God, this shouldn't be that hard. 
I like that we're getting lots more updates and, and moving along. And heck, we should be going faster. But stop breaking things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's all I ask. It's a little thing. Anyway, that's the only time I want to bring it up for this show because I'm really excited this idea of containers existing in a more sophisticated way in the window space. And that we're going to presume that this will be true while the show is out in the wild and from thereafter. All right. So, I mean, we talked about the local host issue. Is there other key features that, uh, that 2019 brings to the table for containers? Yeah, absolutely. So, I've, I've been blogging about this and I'm, I, can, I can send you guys the links to put on the show afterwards. We'll include them. There's always been a little mismatch between things you could do in Linux and things you could do in Windows that don't affect the ordinary running of containers, but do affect certain ways that you want to do things. Mm-hmm. And, and volumes is another one. So when you're running software in containers, the data inside the container. So if I run a Windows container inside the Windows container, I've got a C drive, all my stuff's in folders on the C drive. Mm-hmm. But that C drive, the file system of the container has the same lifecycle as the container. So if I'm running my app in a container and I'm ready to do an update, so the way I do an update in container world, I don't connect to the container and run Windows Update because obviously I might risk losing some files. <laughs> Not that that would ever happen. That never happens. No, absolutely. <laughs> what I do instead is I build a completely new package, a new Docker image with my application. Right. And that will have the latest Windows updates. It'll have a new update of my software, whatever it is I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And then I throw away the existing container and I run a new one from the new image. Um, it's all automated. It's all really easy to put in a, a CI/CD pipeline. And this is really the philosophy of containers as a whole, right? You don't update an existing instance of anything. You just make a new instance with the new versions. Your container is meant to be throwaway. Yeah. It'll last as long as you want it to. You can run it for months and months and months. But when you sure. come to, to do something to it, you're not going to nurture it. You're not going to connect to it and update things. You just throw it away and replace it. It's not a pet. It's cattle. Make burgers. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's a good one. But the trouble with that is, of course, when you replace it, then any state that your application was writing to the C drive is gone right. forever because that container's gone. Right. So what you do instead is there's this other concept called Docker volumes, and a volume is just an abstraction of a piece of storage. So it could right. be a folder on, on a RAID array on my server, or if I'm in a data center, it could be a storage appliance. Or if I'm in the cloud, it could be a cloud service like Azure Files. Each of them can be used as the, as the source of this Docker volume. But it's a, it's a place for stateful storage that will persist. Exactly. Okay. It has a lifecycle outside of the container lifecycle. Nice. So I run my container, I attach the storage, I do whatever I do in my container. When I'm ready to replace it, the new container I attach to the existing storage. So all the state gets persisted. Uh, it's, it's a really nice thing. So everyone kind of uses it for anything, anything stateful that you're putting in a container. And there were mm-hmm. some quirks around that with, with Windows in Windows Server 2016. The main one being that inside the container, your volume got surfaced as a, as a symlink, as a symlink directory. Okay. So inside my container, I have a, I have a folder called C colon backslash data, but actually that's a symlink that's pointing to somewhere outside of the container. And the way that was implemented in 2016 is there's a horrible symlink to a, to a non-existent path which starts with backslash, backslash, question mark, backslash, container map directories, backslash, GUID. It's an internal detail. You shouldn't have to worry about it. Sounds very Microsoft-ish. Yeah. (laughs) But the problem is certain application platforms, uh, notably Java and Go and a few others, they see the directory, secon backslash data, they see it's a symlink, and they try to resolve the symlink so they can cut out a step in the writing the files and go directly to the target. Right. And then they see this backslash, backslash, question mark, backslash, whatever, and they just bomb out. Right. So that used to be 
2016 had this kind of clunky way of doing things. There was a workaround. So inside your Docker file, you would create your volume, C colon backslash data, and then you would run a DOS command inside your Docker file to surface that as G colon or whatever drive letter you want. And then inside right. your application, you write to G colon. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, it's a nasty, hacky workaround, but it's fine. But you don't have to do that anymore in 2019. Yeah, it's tolerable for a V1, and that's what it was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Once you know what to do, it's fine, but you're probably going to bang your head against the wall for a weekend trying to get to the point of knowing what's wrong. And now in 2019, that's just gone. So now in 2019, when I'm inside the container, if I look at C colon backslash data, it just appears as a directory. And then Windows takes care of the fact that really it exists somewhere else, which could be Azure files or, you know, my RAID or whatever. A couple of little things like that. They just make life easier. That's awesome. Elton, I'm going to interrupt you for one moment for this very important message. Hi, this is Richard. The Dev Intersection Fall Show this year will be December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand Hotel. The lineup is awesome. Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, Scott Hunter, yes, all the Scots. But also a ton of great industry speakers for some insight on what's coming up in the world of .NET. You know, Core3 is bringing client technology like WinForms and WPF into play. Could it be time to migrate your existing desktop apps to this new technology? Come learn more at Dev Intersection, December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand. Go to devintersection.com to register and use the code .netrocks to get a discount. And we're back. Richard Campbell, Carl Franklin. It's .NET Rocks. We're talking to Elton Stoneman about the new container support, the Docker container support inside of Server 2019. And I want to keep running down the stack because I think these are important features that just were challenges. Next up, after uh, the better volume support. Also, should point out that this is not just Windows Server 2019. So okay. the core of this, as you mentioned earlier, is the Windows OS 1809 update. So this right. stuff will all be rolling into Windows 10 as soon as you get that update. So as a dev running containers on my local machine, I get these features too. Absolutely. And one thing that right. you get in uh, as a dev, which you don't get in Windows Server, when you get the 1809 update and the next release of Docker Desktop, mm -hmm. so Docker Desktop is the thing that you run on Windows 10 that gives you the little whale icon. Right now, when you're running Windows containers, they're running in Hyper-V isolation. So although it's a container, there's an additional boundary around it, which is Hyper-V. It's not a full VM, but there's this extra layer in between your container and your host. What that actually means is if you go onto Windows Server and you run a container that's running an ASP.NET website, if you look at the task list on the server, you will see W3WP, the ASP.NET IIS host, from the container. So on the host, you can see all the container processes because they're actually running natively on the host. So inside the container, I think I've got my own server with my own file system and registry and IP address and host name and everything else. But actually, my processes are running directly on the server. Okay. On Windows 10, if you run the same Docker container run command with the same image, you won't see the container processes in your Windows 10 task list because they've got this extra barrier around them. Now, Hyper-V isolation is a feature that is for hostile workloads. So things like if I'm, if I'm letting people bring their own code and run them on my server, right. I can use Hyper-V isolation. Stuff that I'm not trusting. And that's how it was presented to me when you said we were going to use the Hyper-V mode. I'm like, wasn't that for the hostile stuff? Because it's more costly, consumes exactly. more resources. Yeah. But you don't want to use that mode if you don't have to. That's exactly right. But that's the default for Windows 10 as well, because 
Right. I'm not sure for all the details around it, but I think historically Windows 10 didn't have the same kernel as Windows Server. So in order to run a Windows Server container, you needed a Windows Server kernel, which you got from your Hyper-V isolation. But from 1809, with the next update of Docker Desktop, that's gone. So now you'll be able to run what they call process isolation. So that means when you run your containers, you'll be able to see the tasks on your, on your machine. You get rid of that extra baggage around that. And you're running these really lightweight things in the same way you do the server. So that's a that's mm. a that's a really good thing to to be doing going forward. Yeah, I'm glad that's finally there. It's and it's one of those things that just sort of made containers an inferior product on the Windows space. Absolutely, because of the way the Hyper V isolation worked. There's an allocation of memory per container. Mm-hmm. It takes a little while to spin that up. It takes a little while to spin up the the kernel underneath. So mm-hmm. startup time is bigger. Memory usage is more constrained. Da da da. That's all kind of gone now. So. Yeah, that's not really a Windows Server feature, but it's just what's coming with the updates in 1809. Should we mention Nano Server just a little bit? And Because that sort of played a role in containers early on, and it seems like all of that has changed. Nano Server has evolved. Its role has evolved. So when mm-hmm. it was first released, and again, we're going back to 2016 here, Nano Server was intended to be a really lightweight operating system that you would run directly on the metal. You would run it on right. the server, and then it would run containers. In order to do that, it had a very limited feature set. So it was never originally called Windows Nano Server because it doesn't have the full Windows API. You can't run 32-bit stuff on there. You can't run .NET Framework apps on there. There's a limit to what you can do there. But as it evolved, more and more people were using it for just purely to run containers. So when I have my Docker file, I start from Nano Server. I package up my stuff that I know will run on Nano Server. And then I can run it in a container that the image is a couple of hundred megabytes instead of several gigabytes, which is what you need for the full Windows Server core. Right. As people started using it more and more for for that role, people were using it less and less for the running it on the server role. And it was this kind of middle ground. It was too big to be an ideal container operating system, but it wasn't big enough to be an ideal server operating system because it missed all the bits of the API. So Microsoft made the decision, and this is going back earlier this year, maybe, right. to say this is nano server is going to be a container operating system. You're not going to run it on your server. It's only for running containerized workloads. So it will run on Windows Server Core on the host. And the advantage of that, and actually this is the case for Windows Server Core as well, is they managed to drive down the image size massively. So whereas nano server used to unpack to be about a gigabyte in size, it's now a couple of hundred megabytes, uh, less even, 150 megabytes, I think. It's still not quite 7 megabyte Alpine Linux image. Right. But it gives you an awful lot of features for a, a very tiny image. But also with Windows Server 2019, the Windows Server core images have shrunk a massive amount as well. So the ASP.NET image used to be like an 8 gigabyte download, and now it's 2 gigabytes. So wow. it's still big, but bear in mind that you can run a 15-year-old app on there without changing it you get an awful lot for your two gig. And disk space is cheap and bandwidth is high. So it's really a question of, do I need to bother with nano server at all? That is a good question. And it depends on Mm -hmm. the kind of workloads you have. Because the other thing to bear in mind is when you get a Windows update, so the monthly updates to Windows that you do installing your server or your Windows 10, Microsoft also released an update to their Docker images. So there's a new version of Windows Server core image comes out. There's a new version of the nano server image comes out. And each of those images have got just the updates that apply to that, that image, that operating system. So Nano right. Server has far smaller diff of the update each month compared to Server Core. So if you are running things like 
Java or on the OpenJDK, or if you're running .NET Core applications or anything that compiles to be native, like Go, mm-hmm. then NanoServe is a better bet because each right. month, when you, as per, ideally, when you're running this stuff in containers, you'll have a CI process that will, as well as building your own apps whenever there's a commit, you're going to pull down the latest Windows images, rebuild your apps, run all the automated tests. And at the end of that, you'll have a new version of your container image ready to go as soon as you're ready. Um, the process of doing that and getting the, the latest downloads will mean, you know, a hundred megabyte download instead of a gigabyte download potentially. Sure. But that only happens once a month. And because of the way Docker works, everything's cached anyway. So it's not so much of a big deal. You should be compiling everything 64 bit for that as well if you're going to work with Nano. Although that seems to be just a good idea these days anyway. Yeah, yeah. Nano does enforce you to do certain things which are kind of best practice nowadays. So you're going to use a small, modern application platform like .NET Core that doesn't come with all the baggage of the history of .NET Framework, which will fill several books, as you know. (laughs) Well, it's also just the security aspects to it, too. The drivers are better. Like, there's a bunch of things now that make 64-bit. Like, you're just, you're cutting away a whole bunch of surface area of risk when you run in that mode. And the neat thing I always liked about Nano was you're going to find out if you really, really are running all 64-bit because often we don't even realize that there's some DLL that was still compiled 32 and it thunks down to it automatically in a mixed mode machine. And Nano won't do that. It'll just go, boop, sorry. And you pretty quickly figure out what's really 64 all the way through. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that surface area point is a really good point. So as soon as you release your software to the wild, there are countless bots trying to attack you day in, day out. So the less stuff you have running in your container, the smaller the surface area, the lower the risk. So sure. for Nano Server now, in 2019, there's no PowerShell. So PowerShell right. was, was part of the previous release. But then the idea being, why do we need PowerShell for something that's just going to run in a container that will potentially run hundreds of, of replicas of that container across my cluster with dozens of machines? I don't need PowerShell because if there's an issue with a particular container, Actually, the cluster is just going to take care of it. It'll kill that container and start up a replacement. I'm never going to need to connect to it and debug unless there's a, a serious problem, in which case I'm probably going to just recreate that problem in, in a development environment. In a test environment, yeah. He wouldn't do it in production, so it's just not necessary. Exactly, exactly. So PowerShell has this extra surface area of potential security flaws and potential things that need to be updated. So they just cut that out of Nano Server and said, you, know, you don't need any of that stuff in there now. So when you're building your Docker images for Nano Server, the pattern now is to, to use multi-stage Docker files. So a Docker file that starts from Windows Server Core and does whatever you need to do you know, from the internet if you've got dependencies, or it does the build if you're building from an SDK. And then that you can have PowerShell to do all your stuff in there. And then the second stage of the image, the final packaging, you start from Nano Server and you just copy everything from the first image. So you don't need PowerShell to actually build up your application. You're going to do that in a multi-stage Docker file. Awesome. And Elton, hold that thought right there, because Richard, guess what time it is? It must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time to prepare for Thanksgiving by stuffing a bunch of bread and vegetable apps, nano size, of course, into the turkey container and hope it doesn't go to sleep (laughs) during the Macy's parade. Uh, I'm more concerned about it being 160 degrees inside of all that stuff, but okay. (laughs) Uh, It's really funny how this kind of humor is lost on the Canadian. And the Brits. (laughs) Well, I had Thanksgiving at the beginning of October, right? Like, my Thanksgiving's already come and gone. Right, right. Well, you know, as many people outside America may or may not know, Thanksgiving is basically where we eat everything in sight, 
followed by a nap, and the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is in there somewhere. Well, anyway, <laughs> it's uh, time to give away a $200 Amazon gift card, compliments of Progress Telerik, to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about the most comprehensive developer toolkit for building modern apps on the market today. With more than 1,100 Telerik.net and Kendo UI JavaScript components and controls, you can easily build modern, high-performant web, mobile, and desktop apps, as well as chatbots. The toolset also includes reporting solutions, automated testing, and productivity tools, and comes with a range of support options. And new this year is a free online training program for all license holders. With this, alongside thousands of demos with source code, comprehensive docs, and a full assortment of Visual Studio templates, you'll be up and running with the Progress Telerik and Kendo UI tools in no time. Download a free 30-day trial today at telerik.com download. And also, please consider supporting .NET Rocks by making a monthly pledge at patreon.netrocks.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Ian Partington. Oh, congratulations, Ian. Yeah, congratulations to Ian. And uh, he just won a $200 Amazon gift card from Progress Telerik just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to be a member, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and you're in the club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree coming up here in a few days. Mm -hmm. It's close. To one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to sign up if you want a chance to win. And we also like to ask our guests, Elton, if you had 5000 US to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Well, now that's an interesting one. So I've been in the process of moving house for the last four months nearly. So I don't know what it's like in the US or in Canada, but in, in the UK, you get yourself in this terrible position where I want to buy someone's house. I've got to sell my house for that to happen. So then someone wants to buy my house and they've got to sell right. their house. So you have this chain of transactions yeah. and we're in the middle of a chain of nine. So we started oh. this process months ago and we still haven't actually moved. So I think I would invest the whole thing in some sort of AI to just make all the legal process go away. <laughs> so I can, just click, I can just click a button like on eBay and say, that's my house there. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. That's a good challenge, actually, to try and make that simpler. <laughs> So having bought a few places in, in Canada, they, they have their problems, but I don't find it that arduous. But every experience I've had with U.S. property, holy man, you guys make <laughs> it as hard as you like. It's like they maximize the lawyers required. That was me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I take full responsibility for all the stupid things you encounter in America. <laughs> I don't think, it, think any of that's true, but okay. <laughs> but I, I wonder when you talk about the English system, because you're talking about one of the oldest legal systems, I bet you run into city issues because sometimes those cities, you know, predate your monarchy. Like you think about London city rules are radically different from the rest of London. Like hmm. the UK could really make that hard. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So the, the house we're buying, hopefully is a 16th century farmhouse. So, you know, there's Holy an man. awful lot of history there to check to make sure that the local church can't come and see you in five years' time and mm. ask for $20,000 to build their steeple. <laughs> right. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of checks to be done. And exactly. And, and you have, I mean, Carl lives in a, in a part of the United States that has some of the oldest homes in the United States. Mm. 
but it's the UK, man. There's been humans banging around <laughs> there for tens of thousands of years, and they've built stuff. Like, every time you stick a shovel in the ground, you hit something. Yep. Mm. We just hit rocks. <laughs> <laughs> and I live in a part of the world where if you find something 100 years old, it's like a miracle. There's nothing <laughs> old over here, really, you know, except for the First Nations things. But, yeah, old buildings that are still in use and actually have a paper trail. Yeah, that doesn't start until maybe 100 years ago. Mm. All right, where are we? Because I'm really enjoying exploring these ideas. Do you want to talk a little bit about this, this desktop angle? Do we think containers for the desktop that are actually a deployed way to use software rather than just for developers? Do you see that in the horizon here? It's an interesting one because you can do it already with Linux. So sure. Jess Fraz, who, who works at Microsoft and used to work at Docker, so you've got yeah. a whole bunch of blog posts about doing this on Linux with things like Firefox, Netflix, VS mm-hmm. Code, all sorts of things. But because of the way Linux works and the graphics subsystem can be mounted as if it were a file system, then when you run a container, you can say, run my container that's got Firefox, mount the volume for my local graphics subsystem into the container. Right. So when it's trying to show things on the screen inside this headless container, Actually, it's piping back out to my real UI, and I can see stuff. Now, Windows doesn't have that separation. So in theory, you you kind of can create a UI container, but you have to go pretty deep. So I was speaking to to a guy who works with us who used to work at Microsoft, and he thinks there are ways of of making it happen, but it's not for your average user right now. Whether it's something that Microsoft are keen to do in the future, it would make a huge amount of sense because you've, you've already got that sandbox. You've already got the a bit, the distribution, so you can get your stuff from Docker Hub, and you just pull the way the Docker images are the, the packages for your software. They're layered, so it's a really efficient way to get updates out to people. And you've already got the mechanism to run that stuff inside a container. So yeah, you know, the simple case of bolting the UI on would would open up a whole bunch of interesting use cases. And of course, you have the MSIX format, which is being used for the store. It's an alternative way of, of doing what is what is essentially a similar thing. Another yeah. interesting point, though, is that when you run a Linux container, Linux has all these all these notions of capabilities of the operating system built in and explicit. So I can run a Linux container and I can say, do not give this container the ability to use the network or do not give this container the ability to run certain commands. Windows doesn't really have that. So you right. would get some of the sandboxing within being able to say, you know, it's got its own file system in this container. It can access a certain amount of memory that I allocate. It can access a certain amount of CPU shares. But without an abstraction around the Windows capability set, you wouldn't be able to get that kind of low-level sandboxing that you can get with with Linux. Well, and, and also get with, you know, any mobile device, right? That whole idea that each time you install an app, it says, hey, I want access to your camera or I want access to your GPS and so forth. It's just that kind of manifest mindset. I think we need to get there, right? And it, I don't want access to the internet. It's like, I need to access the internet, but it's only this URL, right? Yeah, or this yeah. particular location on these ports. Like, I'd love to be that granular. We really give people the, a sense of surety of what's actually happening. But then, of course, the, the flip side of that is, if there's an app that does something that you want, you're just going to say yes anyway, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. No, it's just, these are more boxes that you say okay to. Yeah. But the bigger thing for me is, you know, you look at modern exploits today, and it generally it's messing with software on your machine that already has privileges. Mm. So what I'm really looking for in these more granular security models is, hey, 
This app, which we've already said is okay, is doing something it's never done before. Mm, yeah, yeah. I just wanted you to know that. <laughs> right? So in the container world, there are a couple of really excellent products. Again, this is this is server containers now. It's for websites and batch processes and that sort of stuff. Nothing, nothing with a UI that the user interacts with. Mm-hmm. But if you have a cluster of things that are running containers, in the Docker ecosystem, there are companies like Aqua Security who build these tools that are constantly monitoring your containers. And they do exactly that. They say, hang about, this container that's running WordPress has been using 5% CPU lately, and it makes these system calls, and it it touches these external URLs. And suddenly, it's doing something else. It's spiked the CPU, and it's doing some sort of Bitcoin mining. And it can either automatically shut that down, or just alert you, or whatever. So, you know, when you start moving things into containers, the thing that's running the containers, the, the orchestrator, has a lot of power over all that software because it all looks the same. So it can run exactly the same sort of intelligent stuff like that over a, yeah. a wide variety of software. It's a place where it can sit in Overwatch and sort of have a sense of what's normal, what's not normal, and, and when to sort of raise a flag and, and act. Exactly, exactly. And that kind of leads neatly into the area we haven't discussed yet, which is Docker Swarm and Kubernetes. Ah, I was gonna—I was just about to ask that question, Elton. We're all <laughs> on the same page here. Because I think people are confused when it comes to, to cluster management and things about whether to use Swarm, whether to use your Kubernetes, like what's the right way to go? Absolutely. And it depends who you talk to, which answer you'll get. But for those of your listeners who are not au fait with this stuff, the orchestrator is really a way of running containers across multiple servers. So you have all the servers that you want to be able to, that, that are your infrastructure, and you group them together in a cluster. And managing that cluster is a piece of software, which orchestrates all your containers. So you don't say, I want to run a container on this server and another container on that server to give me high availability. What you do is you talk to the orchestrator and you say, here's my container image. I want you to run 10 of them across the cluster. I don't care where they're running and make sure there's always 10. So if a server goes down and takes a bunch of containers with it, the orchestrator will spin up other containers elsewhere. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So the two most popular are Docker Swarm, which is built into Docker. It's quite an opinionated orchestrator. It's very simple to use, but because of that, it, it makes certain decisions for you. So it doesn't let you tweak everything because it has this simple API. And Kubernetes is the other one. Kubernetes is a lot more tinkerable. You can do an awful lot of stuff with Kubernetes. And because of that, you need to configure pretty much everything as you deploy your applications. They're both perfectly usable. They both run Docker containers. So ultimately, you can take the exact same application, a distributed app that runs across several different containers. You can write an application manifest to run it on Docker Swarm. You're going to use Docker Compose to do that. Or you can write an application manifest to run it on Kubernetes. You'll write a Kubernetes YAML file. You'll use the same Docker images. So you can try the same app without having to rebuild it or, or recompile it or anything like that. There's no, no real architectural decisions to be made or anything. You can experiment easily. Exactly, exactly. It's pretty low cost to move from one to the other. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing is right now, Kubernetes only supports Linux servers in GA. Okay. There is currently beta support for having Windows nodes. Again, for those who aren't aware, if you want to run a Windows container that's got like a full .NET Framework app or something like that inside it or a SQL server that needs the Windows API, you have to run that Windows container on a Windows server. You can't run a Windows container on a Linux server. Right. So if you have Windows workloads right now, you've got to use Docker Swarm because Docker Swarm does support Windows servers and Linux servers in the same cluster for production. So what you can do then is that that enables some really interesting stuff about integrating 
maybe your legacy .NET applications with fantastic new open source software that's running in Linux. Because I can have Nginx, which is an open source web server, which is really useful as a reverse proxy. Mm-hmm. I can have that running in Linux containers, forwarding traffic to my .NET application, my 15-year-old .NET 2 web forms app running in Windows containers on the same cluster. And Nginx, which is the entry point to my app, can do all the smart stuff. I can do SSL termination in there. I can do caching. I can add HTTP headers if my legacy application didn't bother with any of that stuff without changing my legacy app. My legacy app becomes an internal component that's not accessible outside of the cluster. So now you may be dealing with a project where it's not buildable anymore, like you don't have the source. And you've got workarounds now to insert this new behavior in. Absolutely, yes. Inside your Docker file, you can you can compile your app from source, or you can mm-hmm. do whatever else you can do as long as you could script it. So if you've got an MSI, you can script yeah. that MSI deployment in your Docker file, get sure. your app into a container. Um, and then, yeah, if you can then put Nginx in front of it, then you can use that as a proxy to route traffic between other containers. So you can maybe break features out of this big monolith, run them in separate containers, use a different tech stack. All that sort of stuff. So all that becomes available once you have a hybrid cluster that lets you bring some of this this great Linux tech into your world without having to be a heavily bearded Linux expert, you know, because you're working with containers. <laughs> the containers are the same, whether they're Linux or Windows. You don't need to be a Linux guru to, to get the advantage of the open source stuff. Right, right. What about actually setting this up in the cloud then? Is it just virtual machines that I'm running Swarm in? Yeah, so right now, there are two things you can do. You can use, you can spin up a, a whole Docker infrastructure with a bunch of Terraform scripts that, that we provide. But most of the cloud providers have a managed Kubernetes service. So at the moment, if you want to run this in the cloud and you've got Windows workloads, you're going to need to use Swarm. You're going to either spin up VMs yourself and, and manage mm-hmm. them. But in the future, you'll be able to use a managed Kubernetes service. So Windows Server 2019 is likely to be the minimum server version that will support Kubernetes in production. So by the end of this year, Kubernetes release 1.13 should bring Windows workloads into production, and Windows 2019 should support that. And then Azure AKS, which is the managed Kube service, should have that support, first of all, I guess, of the major clouds. So by the end of the year, you should be able to get that whole mixed hybrid workload in a managed service too. I mean, we want to go to managed service, but if you wanted to be using Windows containers in production today, you can't use the Kubernetes service yet. Exactly. AKS right now is only for Linux workloads. Right. And, and presumably at some point, the Amazon Kubernetes service and the Google one will as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So two things need to happen. So they need to support Windows 2019 as an operating system for their VMs. So, you know, they need an image that runs 2019. And then Kubernetes 1.13 needs to GA. So that will have the Windows support, and then the cloud operators can bring that into their offering. So I say I'm guessing that AKS will be first, because if you look at the Kubernetes development community, and they've got got their own Slack community where you can follow what's going on, uh, most of the development work is being done in AKS to verify all the new bits and pieces. So I'm guessing AKS will come first. But yeah, then then Google and then Amazon will will follow. Very likely to follow. But it it does open up this door to... Kubernetes is, once that's done, I I just can't imagine anybody using anything other than Kubernetes as a service. Yeah, it's a valid point. So most of our customers right now are using Swarm because historically that's all that Docker supported in our our own enterprise cluster platform. We adopted Kubernetes earlier this year. So now you can run on the same cluster, the same set of servers, you can run Swarm or Kubernetes together. So I can have a team who prefer Kubernetes, who are deploying stuff with Kube. 
a different team who prefer Swarm deploying stuff with Swarm on the same set of servers, obviously on-prem or, or in the cloud using, using IaaS. And so that's, that's pretty powerful. If you make a choice to, to do Kubernetes, then you can still use your Docker Compose files. So Docker Compose is the application definition language that says, right. I have a web server that uses this Docker image, and I have a proxy that uses this Docker image, and I'm running a message cube with this image, all that sort of stuff. The, mm-hmm. the Docker Compose syntax is much simpler, and it's what you use on the, on the desktop. It's what developers will use. With your Kubernetes deployment, you can take your Docker Compose files and deploy to Kubernetes as well. So you get the benefit of a simpler language, which is easier for teams to work together on. But yeah, if you, if you go full on Kubernetes, I'm not just saying that it's a more complicated language. It just takes, it takes more time to get your head around all the bits and pieces you need to plug together. Sure. No, it, it makes a lot of sense that it does. It's interesting to see all the pieces come together. It's nice to see Windows approaching being a first-class citizen in this, but it's only just starting to happen now. From where I sit, it looks like the real innovation's going on in Azure and migrating its way to the operating system. That's an interesting point. Actually, a lot of the networking stuff that went into Windows Server to support Kubernetes and to support the, the bits we have in Swarm came from Azure. So the Azure networking guys, as I understand it, were working on the operating system and bringing in the knowledge and the, and the code they had to run their Linux workloads in Azure and bringing some of that stuff into the server operating system. So, yeah. That also seems to reflect the new organization of the team, too, right? That there's really not a yeah. Windows team, per se. It's part of Azure. So that essentially, they're taking from Azure and making versions of Windows from it. I think this is, we're only at the beginning of this right now, because it only happened this year. But you're describing what the, a reflection of the organization there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's, uh, it's interesting to see where this, where this stuff goes, because mm-hmm. some of the organizations we work with, they've got legacy.net workloads. They want to move to the cloud, so the easiest way is to put it in a container, run it in Docker up in up in the cloud. Yeah. Others are looking at their their workloads and saying, well, we've got a lot of .NET stuff. Actually, our, our short term is to just run these monoliths as is in containers in the cloud or you know on our new infrastructure. Longer term, our plan is to rewrite them as .NET Core, and then we're just going to do some performance comparisons, and we're going to look at the long term cost of ownership of running these things in Windows containers compared to Linux containers. And because it's exactly the same code base and exactly the same tool set, so I'm using Docker to build these uh, images and to run the software, I can do really, really good comparisons. And the likelihood is you'll find out that Linux versions run faster, that the server operating system needs fewer updates uh, and runs leaner and is cheaper to run. So, you know, longer term, if you have the appetite to move to Linux, there are going to be benefits there. There could be some benefits there, yeah. It sounds to me between 2019 and these updates, the path to taking existing .NET applications and moving them into containers is about to get a heck of a lot easier. Absolutely. I mean, you can do it now. People have been doing this for the last couple of years. Right. But there are those little quirks to work around. There's the fact that the images are pretty hefty. Yeah. Which, unless you've got good bandwidth, it's going to slow you down. All that stuff's going away. The fact that you can do the same things now that you can do on, on Linux containers. Firstly, it's just making them easier to use. And secondly, it's making it a lot easier to, to migrate between the two. So if you've got someone like me who is a Linux person and a Windows person, I don't have to remember that certain things only work in Windows now because the, the feature parity is pretty much there. There's still a couple of little things, but pretty much the things you do day to day are exactly the same now. Same Docker commands, same Docker file structure, same Docker compose file. It's, it's, you know, it's just the same stack. Interesting. Awesome. So... Elton, what's in your inbox? What's next for you? 
<laughs> I am not an inbox zero person. My current so the, the the title of my inbox window at the moment says there are fifty six thousand six hundred and twenty emails. <laughs> I think I got you beat. Oh my goodness! Yeah, <laughs> I am an inbox zero person, and my inbox right now is at twenty five. I beat you both one hundred forty one thousand seven hundred thirty two. Nice. Yeah. So I'm right in the middle. There you go. I go to my board instead, my whiteboard. I've got, I've got three things for Q4. So I run a Windows workshop at various conferences, including DockerCon, which is our Docker conference, which is basically it's a modernization story. So it's that whole thing of taking my existing .NET 3.5 or 2.0 or whatever application, how I can bring that and run it in Docker, and how I can then break apart the monolith and modernize the architecture by running features in different containers and all that sort of stuff. I've got to update that to Windows 2019 because that will solve some of the, the quirks that I've been talking about on the show. Secondly, I've got another Pluralsight course coming out, so I need to write that and record it. That's going to be about Docker storage, which is going to be pretty cool. And the third thing is my book, which is Docker on Windows. I'm doing the second edition. Again, it's all about updating it to Windows Server 2019. This makes the whole show sound like it was a plug for, for my stuff, which is not the intention. Oh, <laughs> not, not true at all, but it's like we're asking you where to learn more, and you've got a book coming. That's awesome, dude. Thank you. That is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, uh, I'm blogging about this stuff kind of all the way. So the, the first edition of the book was all about Windows Server 2016, but all the Docker files that I did in the book, there's code samples. I've blogged about each of those, so you don't need to go and buy the book. You can just read my blog and you can get most of the content there. Wow, that's nice. awesome. I really enjoyed listening to you guys have this conversation. It's <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm, I'm serious. Uh, it's, you know, just not something that I deal with on a day-to-day basis. So I, I appreciate the, the perspective and I'm sure everybody else did too. Thanks very much, Elton. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me again and I hope to come back in soon. Anytime. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a